Hello and welcome to another episode of African Jopadi. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Rainy Creel in Scotland. Hi, hi everyone, and I'm Dihia, uh, the co-host of African Jopadi, and I'm recording from Sunshine, Vancouver in BC, Canada. Today, we're going to be talking about the safety of navigation and the protection of Africa's marine environment, a protection and cure approach. And we have an amazing guest to discuss the topic with us today. Yes, I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Nkiru Scotcher, who is a postdoctoral fellow and instructor in ocean governance and the law of the sea at the Department of Law in Gothenburg University in Sweden. And Kiru's research focuses on the legitimacy of regional approaches to ocean governance, particularly the relationship between the international law of the sea regime and key aspects of Africa's maritime strategy goals. Um, she also works with projects that focus on the law of international organizations, international rules governing marine resource users and users, as well as the impact of technology in mitigating some of the challenges encountered imbalancing users and using um, uh, users or uses of our marine space. Um, she holds a PhD in international law from, I am not sure I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Vridge uh, Universiteit in Brussels, Belgium, a master's degree in international law and international relations from the University of Kent in the UK and a master's of sciences degree in law business and management from the University of Law in the UK and a bachelor's degree in law from London Metropolitan University in the UK. Um, she has among others work experience with the European Parliament dealing with treaty law in a domestic and international context the United Nations Office of Legal Affairs during state negotiations in marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions. And academically, she remains um, committed to the uh, examination, to the concomitant examination of international issues from a legal and political perspective. She has an amazing um, resume, basically, and we're very excited to have her here with us. Welcome, Dr. Nkiru Scotcher. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, so welcome. Um, before we get you to address the topic of today, I want to talk briefly um, about the topic to sort of get our audience to understand why we feel that it's relevant. So the significance of the marine environment to the human and national security of countries in the African continent, especially small island nations, cannot be overemphasized especially the fact that a lot of these countries rely on their marine environment or dependent on marine health and sustainability of the marine environment for, for their existence practically. As such, anything that hampers this contribution or the sustainability of the environment is in itself a threat to their national security and of course the security of their people. Therefore, in light of the recent Mauritius incidents whereby a Japanese oil tanker, MV Wakoshio, broke up and leaked oil in the shores of Mauritius, have sort of necessitated the need for us to reflect on the safety of navigation and protection of Africa's marine environment. And I'm so excited that we have Dr. Nkiru to talk more about this with us. 
So what do you think? Tell us more about this. Right. Uh, thank you for having me. It's really great to be here to talk about this. Uh, I want to start by saying really that maritime transport, it remains the backbone of globalized trade, especially with respect to the manufacturing supply chain. So more than 80% of world merchandise by volume is carried by sea. And, and from a shipping perspective, in the Indian Ocean, you know, small island state such as Mauritius is positioned well, and it's actually located at the crossroads between Asia, Africa, and South America routes. And so, yes, that's why, you know, the ship itself was heading to Brazil before it ran aground um, Mauritius waters. And sadly, uh, groundings are really common accidents at sea. And, uh, and of course, we've, we've talked about the fact that marine environments, uh, health of the marine env environment is quite important. But a good indicator of this, of course, is the presence of contaminants. Now, shipping itself is a major source of pollution and a threat to global marine ecosystems. So even with respect to the activity itself, without any uh, spillage or grounding, it itself is a threat. Now imagine how bad it is when we have a situation like we've, we've got playing out in, in Mauritius. And this is of course an island nation that is already, you know, with a small number of inhabitants and an industry that is tourist-based economy. So it is really quite tragic to watch that whole situation play out from my perspective anyway. It's not just um, the fact, obviously, as you've pointed out, that this is happening at a time where we're practically in the middle of a um, global pandemic, but it's also the fact that the country is already losing a lot of money. And with this happening, it's likely to affect its economy in terms of um, the fact that as of 2018, the tourism sector in Mauritius um, generated about 24.3% um, of the country's GDP. And so we know that unless something radically different is done to avert future occurrences, this potentially is a threat to the country. So I wonder, looking forward, given that we couldn't have prevented this, what can you say about the law in itself or the international law that exists around maritime safety and how can African voices and African countries ensure that it's actually working for them and not against them? Yes, I'd love to talk about this because, of course, the lawyer in me, as soon as I saw this, I thought, who is responsible? But let's just look at this whole prevention approach. You know, I read a recent um, article about this. Someone made, wrote a commentary about this, and they were very much stressing on how there has to be a lot more preventative action in, in Africa. And I thought that's actually quite short-sighted when you think about this. If you consider regional preventative measures that we have in place, you know, we have under the United Nations Environmental Program, UNEP Regional Seas Program, we have the Nairobi Convention of 1985 with uh, Mauritius as a member state. And the protocol really concerns cooperation in combating marine pollution and protection of the marine environment. 
There's, of course, the Abidjan Convention of 1981, which came into force in 1984. Again, sort of stressing that whole regional working approach. But when you look at it really solely from a regional perspective, there are some things that stick out. You know, it's not fully, it's not a fully funded operational mechanism in place. Okay. And so when you have shipping pollution by wealthiest states, why should these small developing nations bear the financial brunt of pollution? Okay, pollutants don't observe state boundaries. Therefore, preventative measures like this need to be global in reach, especially when you think about the fact that this ship itself is uh, flagged to Panama, but it's owned by a Japanese company. So, you know, looking at it solely from a regional preve preventative sort of lens is insufficient. Now, if you take it on a global level and you look at what the law is saying, you've got the, the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention, which does make a constant link between navigational safety and marine uh, pollution. Of course, you know, safety of navigation is beneficial to shipping and all the linked economic benefits, but this link is made throughout the convention itself. And of course, the International Maritime Organization has various uh, conventions. The SOLAS Convention, example, which covers so many aspects of shipping from safety at, at sea to rules of ship operations. And of course, the MARPOL um, Convention for the Prevention of Pollution. So all these mechanisms exist out there. But I think conventions are no good without addressing questions of liability and compensation, right? And when we look at liability and compensation here, you would think it's simple as, at first glance. You think typically the ship owners are liable regarding the cost of the cleanup and reinstatement. Repeated in environmental law. Did you get that? I think I broke up a bit. Yes, can you say that again, please? Well, I said uh, conventions are no good without addressing questions of liability. And it would seem simple at first glance because, you know, ship owners typically are liable regarding costs of cleanup and reinstatement. And of course, in environmental law, there's that whole polluter pays the cost thing. But yeah. when you talk about liability and compensation, it depends on the ship itself. Different ships attract different liabilities. So, for example, this vessel in the Mauritius incident is a bulk carrier vessel. Mm -hmm. So which means that the bunker oil spill, it's, it's, not a, it's not an oil tanker. And because it's not an oil tanker, it go, it's then covered by a different convention. This is the 2001 Convention on Civil Liability. And thankfully, Mauritius, Japan, and Panama have ratified this, this convention. So. Yes, it establishes that they're liable, but this is now where I'm concerned because there is a limitation of liability here, which means that there's a cutoff point in terms of what states are liable to pay here. And that could come into place to limit the liability of compensation that Mauritius could receive here. And that's what concerns me. I think that in terms of the convention, I think it needs to move ahead with the times. If you keep, if you take this bunker convention and line it up with the oil uh, convention, the one that deals with oil tankers, you will see that 
they have kind of worked alongside the disasters of the time. So when we had the Exxon Valdez and we had the Deepwater Horizon, there was actually kind of concomitant movements towards extending and increasing the amount of compensation possible. But it hasn't quite been the case with the Bunkers Convention. And I think when we cannot know for certain how much damage that's happened. And when we look at the previous bills, they still haven't worked out the extent and the true impact of the damage. And so to say we are going to pay up to 60 million or whatever and cut it off, I think it's, 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 not, it's not good enough. Um, in terms of when you look at this bunker convention, just to give you a figure in mind, you know, it would, prov it would provide a maximum compensation of about 65 million. And so that's it. <laughs> that's what they could get should, should they go forward. But I think when, you think when you're looking at the damage to a country's GDP and impact that is truly incalculable, I don't think it's sufficient. That is actually a very interesting perspective that you bring. And I like the fact that you, you actually addressed the point about some of the concerns people have heard, which includes um, some suggestion, including coming from expert, that the Mauritius government were not prepared. And so the question that sort of begs for an answer is, how do you prepare for something <laughs> that obviously is out of your your control or something that you do not anticipate is likely to happen. Because I think that no matter how we look at it, if this has happened in a developed country, say the United Kingdom or even the United States as the deep sea horizon have showed us, you cannot prepare for this kind of a thing. So- I was going to say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's really interesting and to sort of understand how can we then ensure that moving forward, obviously, the level of preparedness is something that you also have to sort of keep in mind or gauge depending on what resources you have. But thinking about how other countries might then want to reflect or ensure that this does not happen to them or they are, that they are better able to address this. So I wonder if we need, from the African perspective, an African kind of, yeah, I'm going to sound quite um, Pan-African here, but an <laughs> yeah. African solution to, to problems relating to um, environmental, marine environmental issues, such as the one that Mauritius have found himself in. And I'm going to add on top of what Ife's question um, to you. Um, does an African solution lie in actual... Uh, liability or increased international liability or foreign liability, I mean like out, outside of the regional perspective. So maybe I'm thinking the African solution might be actually lying somewhere not African. Uh, just going back to what you said earlier about Panama and Japan, the ownership in, in Japan as well. Um, I'm just wondering whether that would be like a united African solution. Just um, is it not dangerous to actually put the liability or um, I would say the blame, quote unquote, on uh, actual foreign entities or is it actually the best approach because um, it is, they are liable at the end of the day? 
you you make a really good point, Dia. Um, I think that when you look at the international community, there is no particular organ charged with the protection of the marine environment. So it is up to individual states to prevent and control pollution from shipping disasters. But what happens when the shipping itself does not meet standards? Now, I, from re recent news, I was hearing that the master of the vessel has been arrested. There's talk of some sort of negligence on his, on his part, which then says, which then, you know, those people who are raising issues of prevention, what sort of preventative action could protect a state like Mauritius from an incident like the one that occurred off, off the coast of Pointe-Saint-Denis. So I think that, yes, there is an international legal framework regarding the pres preservation of the marine environment. That's great. But I think, some, I think what we can do as Africans, really, is to step up and participate in the, in the rulemaking in, at the table. First of all, stand at the table and demand to be heard, but also push forward recommendations towards increasing perhaps the liability that uh, polluters have to pay should they should they break the rules. Because when you know this, when I mentioned that figure of 65 million, that you know that could be a lot lower because there's now going to be a whole protracted argument of the type of liability involved. Now, um, I don't want to get too legal for our listeners, but when we're going into liability, it's, it's based on tort law, in particular negligence. And they're trying to, there's two strands here. You can say that the ship, the navigation of the ship, there's been a fault with the masters or the pilot or the crew, or you can say there's been negligence in the management of the ship. Now, this is where there's a fault with the company who should have ensured that the ship was safe and they didn't. Now, of course, that's a better link to make. If you make the link that the company has been like negligent, then you're more likely to get a bit more money from them than to, you know, to, if it's just the master or the ship crew or the crew. I read somewhere that there was a birthday party on board. Now, I'm sure this is probably anecdotal, but that could have been the reason. Or some other reports said that they were looking to get a Wi-Fi signal um, and then ran aground. So negligence in terms of linking the fact that the ship company has not either operated the ship in, in the right way or hired people that are the right people to do the job is a good way to make sure that Mauritius gets a due compensation, but that's still up in the air. We don't know for certain how that's going to go. That's a whole long process. But I think as African states, we need to then build on what we have regionally. Now, I mentioned these two conventions, and I talked about how they're all working towards institutional capacity and awareness at a regional level. And I think we can go further from that. You know, we should get operational mechanisms in place. Start with that, at least. That's a good step forward once you have operational mechanisms in place to check and, you know, things that monitor uh, these areas. That is one step towards um, increased liability. But I think at the end of the day, we have to step up, get involved with the IMO process, 
and look towards increasing um, the li liability that is payable by the polluter. Okay. Just uh, for our listeners, a reminder that the BP in the BP oil spill, uh, Deep Sea Horizon has paid or was asked to pay $5.5 billion over a period of 16 years, just as a comparison point um, with what's happening in Mauritius and the 60 million in Mauritius. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, but I guess the difference also is that we we are not quite sure. And if I get, did I get that right, um, Dr. Anku, that we're not quite sure what the final settlement for this is likely to be, because obviously by the time they gauge the extent of the, of the damage, then the country and their lawyers, and maybe even individual lawyers, if the people also want to, to make a claim, can then decide. Uh, that's true. And I think we have to bear in mind that perhaps we also might want to consider pressure. Um, Japan is among the top five ship-owning economies in the world. They're number two, mm -hmm. okay? So when you are looking at such a big player, I think that they need to also assume some responsibility here. And I, I'm actually, I shouldn't say some, they should assume majority of the responsibility here. And also the flag states. I think that you know, flag states have an important role to play in enforcing sustainable shipping because they have regulatory jurisdiction over the vessel. So they can apply the law and impose penalties in case of non-compliance. So these are all things that we need to do in, an, in, in the international level, but also we need our states, Africa as a whole, as a player, mm -hmm. considering that we are strategically important to shipping, we should also step up in getting our voice heard and ensuring that the rules that we have in place fit our circumstance and also is sympathetic to our needs. And should anything go wrong, that we are able to get the right compensation for, for us. Okay, so that is actually, again, a very interesting point that you've raised. And it's, it's got me thinking, I know that this is quite different in the context of reflecting on the Bamako Convention on the movement of hazardous waste. But I'm thinking that if we already had things put in place for the implementation of that convention, perhaps some of those materials can then be useful for supporting African states when things like what has happened in Mauritius happen. But I don't know if I there's an argument to be made. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're completely right. There's no other. Yep. I think I could just say yes. <laughs> I wish that. <laughs> I just think that there's a lot that we forget that our oceans don't care about boundaries of what, you know, and what lives in them. You know, we need to have a multilateral approach to, and just sit, staying regional. I think we missed something that you said. We, we lost yes. it. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to say that the oceans don't care about boundaries or what, and, and that what lives in them 
isn't so sympathetic as to what's what. So we need to have a multilateral approach to a marine a manage a protection of our marine environment. And so we can't just stick to regional with this one. Um, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense when we observe that these big companies are not African um, and, and the pollutants don't observe state, state boundaries. And, and so prevention and cure needs to be global in reach. I have another question. Um, like it's a really basic one, but it really it was it was in my head um, for a moment now. Uh, do African states have the ability to fight the battle? Knowing that in in the experiences that we see elsewhere, um, it's been really really hard. Like in the case of the Exxon Valdez, the PP, and other cases, it was really hard. It took years. Um, of fights, uh, negotiations, and uh, court cases, different court cases. I'm just wondering whether African nations have actually the means and that may transfer into, do they have the will, maybe because they don't necessarily see that they have the means to engage in such battles? This, I will that they can <laughs> this is where I think, yes. Um, there is an uphill task. I cannot say that it's going to be easy. Um, I think that the state that has suffered this damage has to be the one to go and, 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 and claim its compensation. So in terms of having the capacity, I suppose, is for the state to, to um, decide that. Of course, capacity is, is an issue when you look at um, African states and, and the way that we have worked with managing our resources, it's always going to be an issue. But it doesn't mean that we have to just give up. I think we've got to keep trying. But also, this is where I think, you know, the impact of civil society and NGOs and other uh, stakeholders could, could add a voice to, to the matter and um, assist countries should they need help. Has that answered it? Yes, I think it's going to be tricky, but um, it's all hope is not lost. No, absolutely, yes. Yeah, hope is never lost. Okay, so I wonder why thinking about a solution then or moving forward, should we then therefore have like, uh, I know, I mean, a lot of you, the listeners that are Africans and those that follow African politics might already be tired of committees. But I wonder whether in light of the fact that the African continent now have a blue economy um, strategy as of February this year, whether there should be like a, um, a committee or a focal point whereby issues like this can be collectively addressed. So for example, rather than Mauritius going it alone to lobby or make a case for getting more compensation, given that the extensiveness of the, of the impact of the pollution might not be known for a very long time, they can go as a collective represented by bodies selected by the African Union, not just from, from, from Mauritius, but in case something similar happens in the future. And I think this is where the regional seas program could fill that gap. You know, it, it, it works towards cooperation in, in combating marine, marine pollution in cases of emergency as well. 
Um, so I think that this can be a way for a collect collective action. I think that starting, you know, the first question really that should be said now, if I were, you know, an African for a diplomat is, why do we have a situation where, where liability is limited by a convention that was drafted in 1976? This is 2020. The world is different. Um, risks and damage is, is, is a whole different world now in terms of the capacity for further knowledge, in terms of what we know about how damaging these contaminants could be to the marine environment. So that's, that would be my first question. Why are we lim be limited by a convention that drafted ages ago? And why is that convention now going to limit the liability of the polluter here? Do we need to re-examine re this protocol? Do we, does it need a protocol where um, the, the limits can be, I don't know, increased a bit more than it is at the moment? Should there be more rules added there or more, uh, steps that shipping companies need to take to ensure that nothing like this happens anymore. So this is probably where I would go. Can we just get that, that convention again and look through it? And perhaps we need a protocol to get this, this convention up in line with the, the times in the 21st century. Okay. Well, thank you so much for really thought-provoking reflections. I mean, it's not too legal for me, and I'm sure our listeners, it will not be too legal for them as well. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I've, I've, you know, if you have any questions or our listeners have any further questions, they can get in touch with you and, and write to me. I'm more than happy to go into this. Um, yeah, it's been really, really good to be here. Thank you. Um, so in light of saying that our listener can contact you, I wonder if you can tell them where they can find you online. Are you on Twitter, for example? I am. I am on Twitter. I am Kiru at Twitter. So it's quite easy to find me, N-K-E-I-R-U at Kiru. Um, I'm also on the website of the University of Gothenburg. If you search for Kiru Scotcher, I'm there. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Or they can just get in touch with you, Dr. Ife or Dr. Bia, I'm sure that you can forward any, any messages to me. <laughs> okay. Um, so thank you so very much for being part of this program um, and for listening. We hope that um, looking forward or moving forward that African coastal states and the continent, of course, would, would do the need for by not only reflecting on how existing international laws covers their interest or not, and try sort of renegotiating the terms of this agreement before a disaster or a tragedy such as this one. And I hope that um, the Mauritius government, of course, get the compensation they need for their people to be able to rebuild better because this is actually very important for them. Yes, I completely agree with that. I think that we are at a time where um, 
and this is also thought-provoking, we need to step up our game um, as Africans, as people from Africa. And I say people from Africa, um, meaning every single one country, but also as a whole. And I'm sounding completely Pan-African there, but I think we need to step up our game there. So thank you so much, uh, Nkiru, for being with us today. And thank you for being actually thought provocative, but also in a language that uh, many of our interdisciplinary, uh, uh, the audience that we have is pretty interdisciplinary, so many of them can actually understand. So thank you so much for that. Oh, it's been a pleasure. All right, thanks everyone and take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.